This is Raw Cut. Welcome to Life Bursts. I'm Sarah. And I'm Matt. We're bringing local stories to you. And today we have another full life to share. Don't go away. Today in the studio, we have the privilege of hearing from another guest. His name is Marty. Marty, welcome to Life Bursts. Thanks. It's great to be here. Marty, tell us, uh, where did life begin for you? Actually, in Sydney. I'm an, I'm an import from the eastern states. But I came here when I was about 18. I did all my schooling, product of the state, etc., uh, over in New South Wales or mm-hmm. in Sydney. And came over here when I was about 18 and have been here, well, almost ever since. I've done a few um, forays into different parts of Australia, but Adelaide's home. So tell us about growing up in Sydney. Well, I went to an all-boys school, East Hills Boys High School. I should give them a plug. <laughs> and the girls were just across the road. Mm-hmm. So it was the last two years that we were allowed to have our playground out the front so we could ogle at the girls over the road. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that had its own challenges, obviously, but... Uh, yeah, it was a good life. We lived near a river and often went down by the river to catch tadpoles and whatnot. And a big part of my life was um, on Sundays, mum and dad always used to take us to church, and on Fridays was our youth group. And uh, youth group was great. Had a couple of really great leaders there uh, who I'm still in contact with occasionally, even today. So, uh yeah, it was like a normal life, nothing overly extraordinary, just a regular school life in uh, boys' high school. And siblings at the time, did you grow up? Yeah, yeah. I had uh, an older brother and a younger brother. So us three boys, yeah, we uh, took it in terms of palling up with each other. You know, one year I'd be close friends with my uh, younger brother and the next year I'd be closer friends with my older brother. And on the third year, then I'd be the odd one out. So it was interesting dynamics. Mm. And what about your parents? What did they get up to? Well, mum was a nurse for a long time and then later on went into office work in a a nursing home. And dad was a um, salesman. Started off as as a uh, wool classer out in the country and used to fly out quite a lot and spend a lot of time away from home. But as us kids came along and the demands at home got more and more, he had to chuck that in and uh, became a salesman and then eventually became a Telstra technician or telecom back in those days. Okay. Hmm. So as you grew up and went through high school, did you want to follow in the footsteps and become a salesman or a technician too? Or what did you want to do? Not really. I, I was doing pretty well in maths and science and really enjoyed that and was looking at taking on engineering. Had a couple of interviews with uh, some engineering groups to try and get a scholarship through university um, but that wasn't to be um, because must have been the first part of year 12, still going for, for uh, this engineering career, and I probably would have done all right in that, but about March or April of year 12, I was in church, as I normally did on a Sunday, and a little baby was being baptised, and nothing unusual about that. That happened quite often. But something happened inside of me on those days, on that day. And I just got a sense as the child was being baptised that 
actually God was doing something really special in that child's life. And I wanted to be part of uh, imparting that, I'll use my language, imparting that grace to children like that. And that kind of flipped me around to from looking at an engineering career to possibly becoming a minister. Okay. And that was a bit of a change. Can you describe this feeling that you're talking about? Oh, how do you describe feelings? <laughs> That's a tough one. Give it a go. It was just a, a deep sense that God was moving. That's all I can say. It was something really mm-hmm. past the mind, into the heart, gut feeling type, mm-hmm. type thing. Um, something I couldn't ignore. So I had to act on it. So the next questions came, you know, first question to my minister was, can you be a minister without preaching? And so he sorted me out a bit in that and, and gave me a bit more confidence to say, well, you learn all that sort of stuff once you get to college. So, uh, yeah, long and the short of it was that year I did slow turnaround to, from maths and science to the humanities and the following year I went from Sydney and came down to Adelaide to the Lutheran Seminary and started my training there. So it was study that brought you across to Adelaide? That's right. In With the Lutheran Church, it's, there's the, only the one um, study place or one college in, for the whole of Australia and that's here in Adelaide. So that's why I came to Adelaide about when I was 18. Okay. Talk us through what's involved with that. <sighs> Hebrew, Greek and Latin. Okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> You're talking it up. You know? oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and there were some studies of the Bible as well, but I'm not a good um, language person, so I struggled with that a lot. Uh, and actually, after a year and a half of this, I had to chuck it in because I just couldn't cope with it. It was very academic um, and I was expecting something a little more spiritual. Um, okay. Got an inkling of that, but not what, a, what I had expectations of. So I wanted to get into something a little more broad um, or broader than what the Lutheran Church was offering me to, or was offering me. So I ended up um, finishing that and six months later, I started in a social work course and began a career in social work. Right. A couple of shows ago, Matt was talking about how for him, church was a bit boring growing up. Do you have any similar experiences to that? Or was church always fun and exciting for you? Youth group was fun and exciting. Yeah. That was the Friday night. Um, but the Sunday was, yeah, I found it pretty boring um, myself as a young person. Um, but it was the only way to that we knew, and it's still today, I think, the only way we know how to express ourselves um, in terms of uh, meeting with God as a group and uh, worshipping him, and uh, that's just what we do. Mm. I'm sure there's alternatives, <laughs> um, but that's the best we've got at this stage. About this time, outside of some of that, you were also experiencing um, some more radical edges of um, people living out their faith as well. So tell us about that that next phase of your life. Yeah, um, that was a, what you're getting at, I know, was a group called Jacob's Ladder, Christian Community. Okay. That was a group that I came in contact with, um, actually while I was at the seminary, and then 
once I came back and was doing my social work training, I got a lot more involved with them. And it was a group that was a Christian group. It was a coffee shop set up by the Lutheran Church, but it was outside the normal um, standard church type activities. And they were reaching out to a lot of people on the streets, um, a lot of different subcultures, you know, drug addicts, homeless, uh, and the bikey group. Um, I love motorbikes and a few others of us also were there. Uh, so we formed a Christian motorbike group. Mm. And I just happened to bring along yes, you brought a, a little prop, yes, which is my colours. So that's the uh, back of the, the colours, which is K. Rook's Apostles Motorcycle Group. Um, yeah. yeah. Talk us through what's on the jacket for people who aren't watching us on our YouTube channel. Okay. There's a big cross in the centre, which is with arrows pointing out and arrows pointing in. Mm -hmm. So we're reaching out as well as um, ministering to each other. There's a flame in the middle of the cross, which is representative of the Holy Spirit, and the words K-Rooks Apostles, which is Christ's Ambassadors uh, and a motorcycle group. Fantastic. Now, it looks like this one hasn't been put by mum through nappy sand as well. This one's <laughs> never been washed, never. ever. Right, it can stay <laughs> over well, there. Yeah, it's no, it's, 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 <laughs> oh, smell it. it's uh, been through a few showers on the bike and <laughs> it gets a good wash that way. Yeah. Yeah, and a few little mementos. This from a 754 badge. Um, little Duvalaki that uh, is in the shape of an M that my wife made actually when she was in high school. So that's to remember her. Aww. And a few other patches and stuff. Yeah. Yes. So that's my memento. And a few of us have got that um, you know, who are in, in the group together. So does the group still exist? It has. It's not in its current form. Okay. There's some group. Some of the members of that um, branched out after Jacob's Ladder disbanded. That was about 1979, um, and they've formed another uh, Christian uh, group called the Long Riders. And it's not a direct um, takeover from from this one, but it's some of the members actually set that group up. Hmm. This is Life First with Sarah and Matt, and we are chatting with Marty. If you like what you're hearing, please write a review of this podcast on your podcasting app, or you can share this on social media. So are you still riding motorbikes today? I wish. I did actually um, have to sell a bike once the children came along, almost got a sidecar, okay. but common sense prevailed and I did and I sold the bike and got a car because we couldn't afford both in right. those days. But about two years ago, I got back into it, bought Ooh. another one and was enjoying a lot of riding through the hills because I live in the Adelaide Hills and mm. it is perfect for motorbikes mm. up through there. But unfortunately, my body didn't like it oh. and I had to... Uh, sell it and actually I've only sold it a few months ago and uh, body's starting to improve let's just say that much but I miss it especially on a Sunday you know up in the hills you see all the groups gathered in the different coffee shops and I think oh I wish I would be part of that but I'm learning to accept it mm. yeah it's part of you it just does become part of you 
Um, but unfortunately, it can't be a, a reality right now. Mm. Well, back to those younger years when the body ached a bit less and <laughs> you shared a bit about uh, that time in Jacob's Ladder and that it was an opportunity to uh, meet different groups where they're at. What was some of the impact that you saw that that had on people who were, were struggling in life uh, as you experienced it? Well, one of the first lessons we learned was people would come to the coffee shop, we'd talk to them um, and help sort out a few of the things in their life, but then they'd go back into their old life and they'd sort of one step forward, you know, three steps back. Mm -hmm. And so what we ended up doing was actually opening our homes to take them in to live with us so we could help to uh, look after them, develop a bit of a culture that was not their old culture and that seemed to work actually pretty well and that included some bikies that came into one of our um, people's places Uh, we had all sorts you know there were like i said before the the drug addicts some of the homeless and there are all sorts of other issues that um, made it possible or made it difficult for them to live and so they came and stayed with us and that presented its own challenges because um, mm. a lot of us were very middle class type people and a lot of them were not middle class type people and there was a clash of cultures there quite often and one of my jobs as I was employed as actually as a social worker over the community homes, that's what we call them, mm-hmm. uh, I would go from house to house trying to put out fires and do all the troubleshooting and there were an, an inevitable lot of fires to be put out and usually it came down to this clash of cultures and expectations of keeping a clean house versus having never kept a clean house Um, who's going to cook Um, scratching up the teflon coated saucepans um, that were a wedding present for for a couple that was our particular issue (laughs) (laughs) Uh, my wife didn't like that very much but that's part of what we had to deal with at the time Uh, Late nights, obviously, um, had to come back to some sense of normality, you know, rather than being up all night and sleeping all day to try and get them to a lifestyle where they were in bed, you know, at a reasonable time so they could function the next day. It was a challenge. So Mm -hmm. there are lots of challenges, but there are lots of uh, privileges too. watching some of these people come through their old lifestyle, leaving that behind and going on and starting again. So there are a lot of really good things that happen there too. Mm. Now, you mentioned your wife, so you better ask this question. This is your question. I, it is my question. How did you two meet each other? Well, I was on uni holidays mm-hmm. up at the Riverland picking apricots. She had a girlfriend who was up there as well, and had a, so we had a common friend, and she was cutting apricots, and my wife came up, on four days off she was a a registered nurse just finished night duty she had a motorbike and she had a yamaha and i had a yamaha Mm -hmm. and so it was love at first sight Mm -hmm. and it we met up there and once we both came back to adelaide uh, to continue our studies and work then uh, i followed her up and the rest is history so it was love at first sight Eventually you got married. I do like to ask this question, but only on special occasions. How did you propose to her? <laughs> well, it was all very rushed. Not rushed. It was, put it this way, five weeks after I'd met her, yeah. we were talking about getting married. Mm-hmm. So that was pretty quick. She was only 17 at the time. 
So we decided to get engaged on her 18th birthday, which was about three months after we met. And we ended up getting married another, yeah, that was in April, and we got married in the August. So we went for a nice romantic walk in the South Parklands, and I officially asked her then. So it was all very nice on a nice night out. Mm. So it was done properly, <laughs> if that's <laughs> on, what you want to know. On the one knee and everything. Oh, definitely. Yeah, okay, oh, yeah. Just to make had, sure. <laughs> had to do that, yes. Now, you, moved, you had your time in Jacob's Ladder and you trained in social work, but that, uh, that couldn't continue. Where did you move on from there? Okay, so Jacob's Ladder wound up in about 1979 and I was working actually for the Lutheran Church in a couple of their settings as a social worker and youth worker um, in Elizabeth was one place. We actually moved to Elizabeth so we could be part of the community up there. And I worked in the Lutheran Church there as a youth worker uh, with some of the uh, youth of the area. That was a challenge. Mm. And then I still had this idealistic look at, or outlook on life. And my ideal sort of work-life balance thing was to actually live where you worked. And there was an ad we noticed up in Queensland in Harvey Bay looking for house parents of a children's home. And I thought, aha, uh-huh, there's a live-in place that what, like we were used to with Jacob's Ladder. We now knew how effective that could be. There was sunny Queensland where the grass is much greener than mm-hmm. in South Australia, so I thought. And my wife was a registered nurse, and between the two of us, it would be an ideal place to work and be as effective as we could possibly be in terms of helping kids. So we applied for it. They flew us up there for an interview and they were all very excited and, and so we got the job. And within a couple of months, we were up in Harvey Bay uh, in a children's home looking after well, up to about eight kids. And we had two by that stage um, and yeah, four and a two-year-old we had. And that was interesting for them too. After a while, a new person would come along and they would show them around the house and oh, okay. introduce them to the new, uh, to their room and to the new people or to the people who were already there. And uh, my kids became really good hosts, actually. So that was good fun. But that was much more challenging than I expected, um, very much so, because what we were given was one weekend off a month uh, to get away to wherever we wanted to, to have a break. And with the children, it didn't happen very easily. Um, we bought a tent thinking that would be make it easier to pack in the car and off we'd go. But a tent in Queensland gets very hot if you're yes. inside. So you always have to be outside the tent during the day. And it wasn't relaxing to get away. And basically, long story short, is they didn't know how to look after us. And we didn't know how to look after us. Mm in such a demanding situation Mm -hmm. because as you can imagine in a children's home it's very demanding with the kids from all sorts of backgrounds Uh, nearly all the girls were victims of incest um, and the boys had a whole variety of of issues that they were dealing with and you put all them together with six or eight kids um, all in the one house and you're constantly on the go your head's in about 10 different directions all the time 
But there were some good stories. Let me tell you one really good yes, story. Yes, I was about to ask. Yeah. Good story. We had a, a pair of twins okay. uh, that came to us, and they were physically about 18 months old. But mentally and emotionally, developmentally, they would have probably been about eight or nine months because they were fed um, in a cot with a bottle propped up on the uh, on a pillow. No, not much uh, physical contact with the parents, and they came in that to us with a minimum of clothes, which was pretty normal. A plane would fly overhead; they'd scream because they weren't used to these unusual experiences. A dog would bark, and they'd you know jump at you and hang onto your legs in fear. So within about six months, they were with us. By the to- end of that six months, they were riding on the back of the dog's back, pointing up to the sky, saying, plane, plane. And they had grown emotionally and physically and in, in their well-being so much in that short period of time. It was just great to see. I don't know much about children's homes. Uh, what happens when it's time for them to leave? If they can, the social workers who work for the government, they're the ones who refer them to us. They will continue working with the family, try and get the family to a place where they could take the children back. And that's Mm -hmm. often what happened. But the cycle was often perpetuated, which was a bit sad. Um, Or find alternative accommodation, perhaps with another relative. This is Life Verse with Matt and Sarah, and we're talking to Marty. Hey, did you know this show is available in video too? You can find it at rawcut.com.au. Now, Marty, you shared a good story of your time in the children's home, but uh, it was a difficult time. How did that time end for you? Unfortunately, um, for us, because of the pressure on us, because of us not really knowing how to look after ourselves and nobody else on the committee that was overseeing it knew how to look after us either, uh, we, well, especially me, experienced burnout like I've never experienced before or since, actually. And yeah, I'll explain a little bit more about how I discovered that with mm. the next um, stage of my life. Right. Okay. Where did you move on from there? Okay. So from there, I actually joined the Federal Police, Australian Federal Police. I'd never heard of this group before. Um, I'd had jobs which were dependent on government grants and up till then and I was about 30 years old and two children and I thought well I really need to look for something a bit more stable something with a career that you can build on something still working with people so I thought about the police and actually it was my accountant who was helping me with my tax who said um, oh I saw an ad in the paper they're looking for uh, recruits for the Australian Federal Police and I thought who and you know, looked it up and uh, took it to the next step and applied. And lo and behold, a few months later, I was in Canberra starting my training with, with the Federal Police. Can you share very much with us about what that training's like? Well, it's only six months in duration, just the recruit training. So you Police Academy, I think we know. Yes, that's right. <laughs> Funny. Nothing like Police Academy. Right. Um, well done. Although there's a few... Similar. (laughs) I won't go there. Uh, But it's in Canberra um, because that's a central place for the whole of Australia um, with policing. Mm -hmm. And from there, you get shipped out to the different states. Um, You do have a choice. And I decided to stay in Canberra for that time. 
And my first uh, placement was actually in an office, which I was a bit disappointed about. But it was a, yeah, I can't say too much. It was, But that was the first time I'd ever actually laid a finger on a computer. Oh, okay. Not, Tell us about that. 1984. <laughs> okay. Most apt year for, for computers. Talk us, through, talk us through what a computer was back then. For someone who wasn't around in the 80s like oh, myself. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, it was very similar to today. All the, the big stuff was done in a room miles away because um, they had state-of-the-art stuff, which was still a, the old uh, screens. and But I had to transfer information one from one computer to another computer because they are two separate systems. One was for customs, one was federal police, um, and there was not much talking to the, each other. I mean, they're all interconnected these days. So it was, it was a bit of a boring job to start with, but you got to hear some of the interesting cases that you were inputting onto the computer. But that went on for a little while, and then I did some work on the streets in Canberra, like general policing. Okay. Um, which is like any any state with their general policing. Um, but I was caught up in the middle of interest rate rises. Now, what's that got to do with policing? Well, we had a house that we bought with 13.5% interest, would you believe, mm-hmm. um, on, the, on the mortgage, and we could manage that. But then every year it was going up by a full percent to the point it got to 17.5%. We couldn't afford the costs of maintaining the house, so I thought we have to do something drastic. If I just sell and stay in Canberra, we'll have to foot the bill for all the selling costs and if we ever buy again, um, the buying costs. So, But if we moved into state where there are other positions available, then the job would pay for the selling of the house and <laughs> buying of a new one. Oh. So that gave us an idea of going to Hobart. Um, I applied actually for Adelaide first, then Perth, then Hobart and Launceston. I had four choices in that order because I wanted to get back to Adelaide. That was always the goal. Yeah. Um, But I got Hobart instead. And so we spent the next four years down in Hobart. And that was great because we did everything. Because it was a small community of police, uh, nobody specialised in anything. Um, So we did drugs and fraud and surveillance and just everything and the intelligence work um, and put all our cases together ourselves. And like I said, and it'll become a bit clearer when I explain what happened when I moved to Adelaide. But, uh, yeah, four really good years. Hobart was a fabulous spot uh, to be. But then a sergeant's position came up in Adelaide, so okay. I thought I've got to apply for that. Uh, had a few years under my belt, did my detective training while I was down there. And had an hour and 20 minute interview on the phone um which was yeah i remember that very well but anyway that's another story was it good was it a good interview oh, that way it was, you remember but it? it was a good interview and but it was very stressful okay right? because you're always on tender hooks it was hands-free but it was just difficult i used one of the interview rooms where we interview some of the crooks uh, so nobody <laughs> else would disturb me yeah that's a so good you idea. can imagine you know four blank walls around the place um Anyway, I didn't get the job, but I was invited to come to Adelaide at rank. So I must have done fairly well in the interview, but not quite good enough to get a sergeant's role. Um, so we jumped on the plane and, no, we didn't. We drove back to Adelaide. Um, and again, the job moved us and that was fine. And spent the next uh, 10 years in Adelaide. 
where we started to, I started to experience a bit of specialisation. So you'd work in either fraud or in drugs or in intelligence or in um, uh, surveillance or whatever. So people would do any of those jobs full-time, whereas in Adelaide, in Hobart, we did all of those things all the time, all by ourselves. So it was a whole different way of policing. Mm. And it was good. Mm-hmm. So do you have any particular highlights or challenges from those federal police years? Yes. The stories that you're allowed to tell. Yeah. <laughs> Hard to share with us. One of the, the, probably jumping ahead too far, but one of the issues that often happens in policing, and I, I saw it on a movie just the other day, same, same problem, uh, up to the role of senior constable, up to that rank, it's just a matter of the number of years you've done and maybe a few exams that you've passed and you can get to that role quite easily. But to get a sergeant's position, you need to have a vacancy somewhere that you can fill. So there is always a huge backlog of senior constables around who are not going anywhere because there's such a glut of them um, that it's really difficult to get a sergeant's position. So there's a lot of cynicism, um, disillusionment um, from the senior constable level. And they really haven't cracked how to sort that out yet. A lot of experience there. So when you see somebody with two stripes, don't take them for granted um, because they've often got a lot of experience under the belt. They're frontline people um, who have been dealing with the public for a long time, and uh, but they can't quite get or jag that sergeant's uh, position. And I saw a lot of very cynical senior constables and the first thing I said to myself was I am not going to become like that just won't Um, so that was in the back of my mind all the time so anyway I spent the next 10 years I was the first um, placement I had was actually with the Australian Securities Commission now it's ASIC but in those days it was just Australian ASC and worked in white collar crime and they were big multi-million dollar jobs uh, which I can't tell you who it was. that, uh, But there was a lot of corporate fraud that was happening in the 80s and then we caught up with it in the 90s, which is the era I'm talking about. Um, so you can probably work it out for yourself. And that was fascinating because I hadn't come across the whole business world until those years. And yeah, suddenly just being on a salary for, for these guys just wasn't part of their lifestyle. And they were making, you know, mega bucks and um, they could spend a lot on lawyers too. But, yeah, it was, it got actually quite boring in a lot of ways too because you'd be dealing with rooms full of documents, um, probably 10 metres of four rows of four drawer filing cabinets full of documents being seized from four different states, from Perth to Sydney, Melbourne and Adelaide, and you had to document where they'd come from. And there's a lot of paperwork, let's put it that way. Mm. <laughs> a lot of work in front of a computer. And I got a bit sick of that. So finally, once I got out of that, I asked if I could go into drugs. And so I did drugs for the next couple of years. I mean, investigated. Yes, you better clarify that. This is Life Bursts with Matt and Sarah. And we are talking to Marty, who is not doing drugs. In Australia, juvenile arthritis affects 1 in 1,000 children. 
It's a silent yet common condition. Kids Arthritis is here to help support these children and their families. To help them, go to kidsarthritis.org. This has been a Raw Cut Community Service Announcement. So, Marty, was it interesting investigating drug scandals and drug selling mm-hmm. and buying and whatever that's involved? I'm not a police officer, so I don't know. But Yeah, working, working in drugs is much more fluid and dynamic okay. uh, than working in fraud. Fraud has happened. You've just got to prove it. Mm-hmm. So you can take your time. But drugs are happening at the present time. You're working with other agencies. You're doing up warrants and you're... Um, getting listening devices and telephone taps and other people to help you and it's all happening at the time mm-hmm. and you've got to catch them at the time um, with the drugs to prove that they've actually possessing it. So, yeah, working in drugs was much more exciting and it extended me along a lot, actually. I'm probably more suited to the uh, fraud-type work but I'm in who I am, but the uh, drug work was much more exciting, I have to say. And I have to say, too, that one of the bus that I was part of, it's not just my bus, but that yeah. I was because of the whole team involved, Yeah, we kept the record for the uh, largest amount of heroin uh, seized in the state, and that record kept for about 10 years. It was about 13 or 14 kilos of pure heroin straight That's out of China. Right. Wow. Yeah. Well done. So that was my claim to fame. Okay. Mm. Well done to you and your team. Yeah. So you, you received that accolade? You, you did, no. You, did. <laughs> you just do your job. You don't get any accolades. Just doing your job. Yeah. But you uh, you didn't stay in the federal police uh, in the longer term. Uh, what, was, what caused the change? As I said before, you can get uh, very bored with some of the fraud work. And I was recycled back into the fraud jobs. And my last job was, uh, yeah, a multi-million dollar fraud um, emanating from the Riverland. And we took a whole team up there to execute warrants and interview people, all the stuff you see on TV. Uh, That took about two days. And then after that, all the documents we'd seized, we brought back and started the same process again, sitting in front of the computer, recording them, um, you know, for weeks and months. And it was going to take probably another two years to process all of that before I got to court. And in the middle of that, I was starting to see myself become one of those cynical senior constables. And I wasn't liking who I was. So I thought, this is, I've got to do something about this. Mm-hmm. Uh, I need a change. Um, and at the same time, my wife was... Uh, doing pretty well in her nursing and she'd specialised in asthma and had done some postgraduate stuff and there was a, co- a conference up in Darwin that she went to and to, to speak at this conference. So I thought, oh, it's at Darwin. I've, I've never been up there. So I thought, oh. I'll carry her bags. So <laughs> made Not into... go in the bags. No, 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 no just carry go. her bags. <laughs> um, not, no more concealing of stuff in bags. <laughs> uh, so I carried her bags up to Darwin and... She was conferencing and happened to have a cousin up there who owned two backpackers hostels and they wanted to sell one. And I thought, oh. See where this is going. (laughs) I've worked with people in business, Um, you know, not necessarily the honest people, but I know how this works. I'd actually done a course um, in in business management Mm -hmm. somewhere along the line. 
And so one thing led to another, and that was October. And by the following March, I think it was, we'd actually moved to Darwin, bought this backpackers hostel, and we're going to settle in there. Again, another ideal lifestyle um, up in Darwin, meeting, meeting all these travellers and um, having our own business. And we would be the boss. That was my thoughts. And? <laughs> Turn, turned out the business was the boss. Okay. It had certain requirements you just had to do. So we became the subject or the slave of the, bo- of the uh, job. But that was Okay. Um, because we met some amazing people up there, um, people from all around the world. We didn't need to travel, we decided, because we're meeting all these foreigners. <laughs> they're all coming to us. Yeah. Had a lot of good conversations, and the TV in the main common room was constantly being, um, where people were preview, previewing their um, slides and their uh, photos on that so you could see where they've been oh, and wow. hear all the stories. One, one guy in particular, I remember, telling me how he used to catch these cargo boats or ships that used to go from island to island to island in Indonesia, not the regular tourist route. So somehow he got himself onto some of these cargo ships and went to the next island, spent a week or so there, and then got another ship to the next island and and did almost, it wouldn't have been the whole archipelago, but yeah, just went from island to island to island for weeks and weeks and weeks. So Finally came down to Darwin and I thought, these guys know how to have an adventure. Mm-hmm. And so we, yeah, we really enjoyed that. Where is your your faith and this calling that you felt that you had inside of you? Where's that gone? Okay, that, that was there. Well, the whole calling wasn't there. That was, that sort of left when I left the seminary back years and years and years ago. Mm-hmm. But in Darwin, um, it was interesting. Our, just a little sideline, our daughter came up to study while we were there and she, she stayed with us in our little unit. Um, we started going along to the local Uniting Church mm-hmm. um, at that stage uh, up there and there was a youth leader who uh, you know, looked fairly dynamic and he was, um, no, he wasn't single. He was going out with another girl and we're thinking our daughter and him would be perfectly suited. Um, and then eventually I heard through the grapevine that he'd broken up with this girlfriend. And I thought, aha, we'll have to introduce <laughs> him to our daughter, Rebecca. Wow. And so finally, we would become good friends with this youth leader's parents too. And uh, we'd spoken to them about this guy. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> and we thought, and they spoke to us about our daughter and we got our heads together and thought, yeah, that'd make a really good match. <laughs> and the reason Sarah is laughing there is because she knows where this is going. I that do know where this is going. youth leader happened to be Matt Carrat. <laughs> so uh, what happened to me after that time... Is he turning red yet? No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what happened in, in my case with that calling thing uh, was about three years after we were there... We experienced 9-11, the Bali bombing, and the ANSAC collapse, and numbers were going down. Are we moving away from Matt right now? Just, he's sitting in the background. <laughs> okay, because I have some questions not my to ask. No, no not, not for public <laughs> viewing. Um, yeah, 
Where was I? Taking you off track. Oh, sorry. <laughs> you have, 9-11 had it's happened. That's right. Yes, answer. numbers were going yeah. down and we had to decide, are we going to sell up or are we going to extend our overdraft and continue on with this? In the middle of all of that, um, a friend of ours came up from Adelaide just to visit and stayed with us for a while. We told him the situation and uh, he said, well, have you ever thought of actually going back to the ministry? And I thought, oh, no. I've tried to put it out of my mind. I thought, no, I'll look at going to customs or somewhere like that that uh, I know what they do and it'd be much more interesting than going to the ministry. Anyway, long story short, I went on a... Um, an Emmaus walk, which is like a retreat over mm. about three days. Mm. I've done an Emmaus walk. Yeah. Yeah. And you don't know what's coming up next. No, you with don't. Those things. So, <laughs> you know nothing. Yeah. So I knew it was the last day and it was getting towards the end of the afternoon. And I remember, well, before I started, sorry, I said to God, hey, listen, I need to know about this possibility of going into ministry and I'm having an Emmaus walk, that would be the perfect place for you to talk to me and say yes or no. I don't mind either, but I need it in black and white. Yeah. No hunches, no anything, no inklings. I needed something much more definite than that. Anyway, the first two days happened and nothing um, was there. And the third day, getting to the afternoon, I remember saying to God, look, if you're going to tell me, you better hurry up because there's <laughs> not much time left. I'm sure it's going to finish soon. And... About a minute or two after that, one of my group leaders walked up to me and said, Marty, you ever thought about becoming a minister? Boom! <laughs> my, literally, my knees went weak. I went weak at the knees. And I thought, I swore at God. <laughs> I said, no, I can't say that. <laughs> uh, and I had nowhere to go. I thought, okay, that's what I've got to do. That's what I've got to do. It's what you asked him for. I did. He gave you exactly. what you asked for. <laughs> exactly. So um, we ended up selling up and moving down to back to Adelaide to do some training to become a minister. Meanwhile, Matt had a bit of an inkling that he was thinking about something along the same lines, and he can tell you his own story. But he ended up moving down about the same time. It wasn't a year later. What, no, no the same pe- time. The same time. Down to Adelaide, um, and we started at college together, um, and, yeah, the rest is history. Oh, that's so cute. Yeah. This is a great place. We'll have a break. Uh, this is Life Burst with Sarah and Matt. If you think more people should listen to this, share this podcast on social media. So, Marty, what was it like studying with Matt? Well, we had one particular class where my wife actually joined us with studying. Yeah, so she's cool. and she has actually become a minister too. Family affair, how cute! And nice. Matt got married to my daughter. Must have been what nine months or something, ten months after we got back to Adelaide. I forget now. Anyway, she had some loose subjects to do, and so she joined us at college. And Aww. one of the history classes we had, there were four of us from the same family in this history <laughs> class. Before I lecture, I didn't know what to do. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, it was good fun. And and we've gotten on really well. Um, I don't think there's too much animosity, is it? Yeah, <laughs> oh, look, we'll talk about that after. <laughs> yeah, okay, okay. <laughs> no, it's good. 
So the study happened. Um, we got through that, and our first placement, um, Naomi and I were placed at Southern York Peninsula with 10 churches between the two of us. She was employed part-time, and I was full-time. And, um, yeah, we preached around the countryside and uh, did all the things that ministers do. Uh, did that for about four years, and then we moved up to Stirling, a place called Sunset Rock, mm-hmm. uh, Uniting Church, mm-hmm. and that was great. I actually played tennis with a whole bunch from uh, Sunset Rock this morning. So we've stayed good friends, actually, uh, all, all the way through. And that was, what did we do that for? About six years, and then, what's that? Ten, yeah, and then last couple of years I was down at Strathalban and a few of the smaller churches around there. What type of challenges come along with having ten churches between two people that are <laughs> married to each other? Well, we learned to deal with it. <clears throat> we also learned that we're different from each other and we operate differently. Mm-hmm. And it took a while to catch on to this, but, mm-hmm. but we did finally. And uh, Naomi's much better at pastoral care than I am but she keeps saying that I'm a better preacher than her. So we learn to major on our majors um, more so than what, or more in the later years than we did in the early years until we sorted this out. Um, and I was starting to get jealous of people wanting to talk with Naomi. I was thinking, hey, I'm a minister too. <laughs> <laughs> but she's much more empathetic and pastoral and, than I am. Um, but I think I can preach a good sermon, so I'll make up for it there. Being a, a minister and having lots of people to look after, you know, you're, you're a shepherd looking after a flock and you're both doing that. How did you find time outside of that to do other things? And what were these things? Uh, <laughs> in the first placement, we didn't do a lot of extras. Okay. Um, we shut ourselves away inside the house and... Uh, and hid from the world. No, it wasn't quite that bad. Uh, it was pretty much 24-7. Mm-hmm. Um, we weren't harassed a lot in the manse that was we lived in. Um, in later years, when I came to Stirling, we uh, bought a caravan. We were always been into caravanning. So getting away from the place physically mm-hmm. became important. And, and they were always good holidays to, to get away Again, we're together, so but we enjoy each other's company. Mm-hmm. We do things very differently. Um, yeah, I won't go into all our private details, <laughs> but just to say that we're very we complement each other. There are yeah. some some marriages, people are very much alike. Others are very different. We're in the different category, but we know we complement each other. And now we've learnt how to live separate lives together, and it works. Mm. I can see that you really love your wife. Oh, how yeah. how long have you been married for? Coming up to 46 years. There we go. Yeah, you good. can see that. That's the yeah. right answer. You had a figure? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, did. I thought about it before. You didn't have to think about no it. <laughs> yeah. And uh, if, if you could, is there one story or one highlight from those all those years that uh, you were serving in ministry? Mm. Not so much one highlight, but a particular type of ministry that happens is when you're invited into a family's most intimate times when a loved one is dying or when they're preparing to get married. They're the two times that I found it was really a privilege to be a, um, a minister invited into those very special times of, um, you know, of life. 
uh, especially the dying part. And I've been present where they've, um, different people have been dying and the family's all gathered around and you're invited to come in and, and pray with the person. And I think, what am I going to pray? You know, I, I still say that, but they expect you to. Um, mm-hmm. And so I do. But so often I just launch in thinking, God, give me the words. And he does. And one particular time that happened and the wife, well, it was a husband who was dying. The wife said to me, oh, that was a really great prayer. And I thought, what did I pray? <laughs> and I couldn't remember. It was mm-hmm. as, as though God's spirit just used me as a um, means to pray what needed to be prayed. So they, they're the type of times that really stick in your mind, um, the, the privilege that you've, you're given. Have you had times where you've sort of married a couple and then they've had children and then you've christened their children? Like, have you experienced that? Not that in particular, okay. but some of the marriage, because I haven't been there long enough, um, okay. some of the uh, the weddings have been, yeah, fun. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> now, the, the last one, um, actually, I was at was, was quite amazing, actually, and it was good to go out on, on a real high with this particular wedding. Um, but I've been invited back to one of the smaller churches I was part of to take another wedding in about a, uh, three weeks' time. We signed the documentation a month and, a, and two days before the wedding's due, so they just just got in in time, and because um, you have to give them a month's notice legally. Mm. And uh, yeah, that'll be good fun. They're they're my age actually, so it'll be. I've had a couple of of uh, marriages of older people, some inside the the manse, inside our home. Um, Others, you know, big church affair. It's all sorts of different uh, weddings that we've taken. And they've been really good times. And often with young young people, when they come to you, they're all in love and, you know, smoochy and, you know, giggly and carry on. And it's great fun. And it's really <laughs> good fun to be part of that whole uh, dynamic. Oh, that's lovely. Hmm. Well, thank you. We're coming to the end of our um, time with you today. Matt will ask you the last question. Yeah, well, look, you've now retired and uh, that's, that's a right. whole new chapter of life. But looking back at uh, the life that you've experienced so far, it's not over yet. Um, <laughs> yeah. If you had one piece of advice that you could give to whoever's listening or watching today, what would that advice be? As a, well, as a minister and often as you get older, people look to you to four words of wisdom and that's fair enough especially as a minister that we're supposed to sprout forth wise things all the time but I've discovered that wisdom is often in the words that you don't say more than the words that you do say often I'd like to say a lot of things but I know I can't and I think it's only wisdom that develops over the years that uh, stops you from saying what you shouldn't say and there's wisdom nobody will know what you haven't said so it's only between you and god that um you understand that that that's where the true wisdom comes from thank you wise words (laughs) (laughs) well No, you go. Yeah, well, thank you, Marty, for coming in today and for sharing uh, a little of your life. There's uh, plenty you've packed in mm-hmm. there, but really appreciate you coming in and for the wisdom you shared. And I'm sure that was encouraging to our listeners, um, our, those of us uh, joining us today. Yeah, well, it's been my privilege. Thank you for having me on here. And you can catch up with all things Life Bursts are either by our uh, YouTube podcast channel, so you can hit subscribe, or you can listen to us wherever you get your podcasts from. This has been Life Burst. I'm Sarah. And I'm Matt. Thanks for joining us. 
Life Bursts is hosted by Matthew Karat and Sarah Freeman, with production by Rhys Jarrett and Kay Hoshra Ozadigan, with additional assistance by Brett Freeman. For more episodes of Life Bursts, go to rawcut.com.au. This is a Rawcut production.